Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today... This week... (laughs) (laughs) We're dangerously likely to talk about it. Let's go above the fold with this week's headlines. Okay, guys. So this week, or this past week, really, we have 115 degree heat in Portland, Oregon. We have a record 108 degrees in Seattle. I melted in my car in Boise. I step outside and immediately become a pool of sweat. You do that normally. I'm not sure how to respond to that. It's been over or near 100 degrees in Idaho, if you couldn't tell from our banter just there. <laughs> like right now, it's 103 degrees and it sucks. Um, there's pavement that's buckling under the heat and the Northwest has seen power outages. The power grid has not been able to keep up. There has never been a heat wave this extreme in the Pacific Northwest. And if you're wondering... Why, yes, climate change has something to do with it. Look, heat waves, and in this case, heat domes, are things that happen regardless of these weather or regardless of climate change. But scientists can easily pinpoint climate change as what makes kind of these weather events incredibly more extreme than they would have been. So I don't really have any questions for y'all as we have addressed climate change here before. It's just another reminder that we get to live with the consequences as as younger people in general. And I saw this tweet the other day. You're still in my job. I know. I saw this tweet the other day. um, And this person said, this will be the coldest summer that we will experience from here on out. Hmm. And at first I felt like it was dramatic, but honestly, I really don't think that's too far off from the truth. And that makes me kind of sad. Um, So I don't know if y'all want to say something. Otherwise, I don't have a specific question for y'all. Torrance, do you have anything before I jump? No, I think you said it well enough. I mean, the sad reality of it is that that this is something that we have to live with. Yeah. Something that I I just want to add into this narrative is something that I reflected on um, recently. A year ago, probably today, maybe a couple couple weeks earlier, um, California, Oregon, and Washington were on fire. There was enough smoke covering Idaho that this entire sky was orange and for our political discourse to continue to deny science and continue to pretend as though we are not beginning to witness the displacement due to climate change of people is outrageous and frustrating and inappropriate um, because these aren't the temperatures that you expect. I, 2020 is going to be a year that I'm sure many process in, in different ways, but reflecting on the fact that for multiple months going outside was technically a health hazard because the smoke was so dense that we, one, couldn't see the sun, but two, couldn't breathe clean air. And now a year later, we're in a space where the heat is so immense and the sun is so dense in the region that states are experiencing droughts and not fires. Um, just continues to remind me that this, this is a crisis of monumentous proportions when the administration speaks about human infrastructure, when they talk about the importance of green energy it is not just a liberal talking point. 
is a recognition that over time, climate will displace millions. Yeah, I'm really scared for the fire season this year, honestly. There's like no reason why it wouldn't happen at this point. And scientists think that um, like when the West is in drought, like periods of drought, it usually lasts five to six years as of recently. And now they think it's just going to be in a perpetual state of drought forever. And that's just the way it's going to be now. And that's fucking scary. Past the Green New Deal. Amen. Yeah, we can go that far. <laughs> I don't agree with I don't agree with the whole Green New Deal. Well, but the idea of it though. The yeah, idea. and I wasn't necessarily yes. since you want to bring it up, I wasn't necessarily making a full throated <laughs> endorsement of the entire I wasn't bill. I was saying, simply I wasn't making the offhanded comment that like something must be done and right now nothing is. <laughs> see see the difference between something must be done versus past the Green New Deal? Yeah, just saying. Last week, amid pressure from activists, her colleagues, and voters, the first-term senator representing the state of Arizona, Democrat Kristen Sinema, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post defending her position of protecting the filibuster in the Senate, the rule that requires 60 votes for a bill to pass. A rule that is seen as a relic of a Jim Crow past that has long been used to obstruct progressive legislation, including anti-lynching bills and more recently the DREAM Act that would have given a legal path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children under no fault of their own. In the op-ed, the senator said, my support... Quote, my support for retaining the 60-vote threshold is not based on the importance of any particular policy. It is based on what is best for our democracy. The filibuster compels moderation and helps protect the country from wild swings between opposing policy polls. To those who want to eliminate the legislative filibuster to pass the For the People Act, voting rights legislation I support and have co-sponsored, I would ask, would it be good for our country if we did, only to see the legislation rescinded a few years from now and replaced by a nationwide voter ID law or restrictions on voting by mail in federal elections over the objections of the minority. Caleb and Terrell, it's not that I don't understand or see the senator's perspective and position on this, but I do take issue with what seems like a willful dismissal of reality or or more so maybe just a lack of acknowledgement of the political reality and the efforts of the opposing party in state legislatures across the country to do exactly that, which is institute voter ID and other restrictive laws for voting. I, I We've had a lot of conversations about the filibuster I I think that like obviously if I was a senator I would probably feel compelled to abolish it but like as a matter of political theory I understand the differing opinions and how they they are sound to some degree however if if your reason for wanting to protect the filibuster has a lot to do with democracy I guess I just am like where is this full-throated bullish concern for democracy otherwise outside of the filibuster is what I think I take large issue with if that's your reasoning, then that's fine. But I almost I don't see a consistent representation of that belief across the board. Hmm. What are your thoughts? I I mean, I think you bring up very great points, but I, I also think that when you look at democracy, the argument that Kirsten Cinema is making and the argument that you make are making are in tandem. They're parallel lines. They're not intersecting. They are not crossing. The voter ID laws and the things that are happening in our red states are a direct attack on democracy. They are specifically impacting our minoritized populations because they fear what they might vote. But at the same time, the argument that um, Senator Sinema is making is one that the, the care of American democracy, as you might say, is the sense of consistency and the sense of of uh, unilateral swing. 
while we might be frustrated with what's happening with the filibuster, while we might be frustrated with the fact that our American political system has continued to fail multiple generations of people, it is not at the fault of the filibuster. It is the fault of the Republican Party. And we we saying that, oh, if we get rid of the filibuster, we can just do X, Y, and Z ignores the fact that a democracy is built by the people who vote in it. Just because the filibuster is gone does not mean that the Democratic Party will always be in power and will be able to continue to protect and ensure that uh, the For the People Act, the infrastructure bill, things of that nature remain safe. Yes, democracy is important to protect from a, a voter perspective, but it's also important to protect from an institutional side. And I, I personally feel and I personally believe that your point is exactly right of, so what do we do? I think I lean on Elizabeth Warren running in the primary and the comments that she mentioned of corruption and, and the sense of um, disconnect between the grassroots initiatives and what's happening in the administration. And we've talked about this a few times. Um, there's actually one episode where we dove into what are the what are the say what are the safeguards for d- protecting our democracy right and in doing so we highlighted multiple things of yes voting things of that nature but also recognizing that our legislator is old as fuck and is serving no one but the old as fuck population and that i still believe is core to the issue that we are seeing. We have people who live during segregation. We have people who believe that America has made such great progress and are unable or unable, pardon me, to understand that there needs to be a change. Um, and those are the pieces. And yes, Elizabeth Warren might support the idea of getting rid of the filibuster because she wants to get through policies that are important. But she also recognizes as a former Republican that there is some importance to having both sides speak and work through a legislative process. Her her disbelief and her anger towards the filibuster is not one of this is going to be the solution. It's one of we have um, walked so far away from our path that we might be at the point of no return. And I guess my argument against her and against you in the space and uh, I guess my support for cinema <laughs> is what a take <laughs> is we haven't we haven't crossed the point of no return because there's still options and things that are at our disposal. And I I'd lean on the Biden administration as an example of that. Sorry, I went on a soapbox there, Caleb. Go for it. <laughs> I just. I think in this group, I'm kind of the in-between because I, uh, on one hand, the filibuster is, I don't think that it's what caused us to be in this moment at all. I don't think it's the problem. And so I do agree with that point, but I also under, I also see that it's, it's kind of the thing that's blocking, it might be dramatic, but democracy right now, since Republicans are are passing all these voter suppression bills and undermining democracy right in front of our eyes. And we don't seem to have any urgency about it. I don't think, at least for Democrats, I don't know about Republicans. 
I don't think getting rid of the filibuster um, means that they're completely done with bipartisanship. I think there's an interesting example that happened over the last few weeks of 10 Republicans who are trying to do infrastructure talks with Biden because they want to, this is more of a take than what we actually know, but it seems like they want to uh, show people or at least their constituents that they can govern because they know that they know that the Democrats are going to pass their own infrastructure bill that expands on the one on this bipartisan one. So why would they do it then? Right. I think they want to show that we can govern and that might be what happens if the filibuster is gone too. I, you said just now that the Republican party is the problem Mm -hmm. and the filibuster is not, which I do agree with. But the problem with that argument is that the Republican party is using the filibuster to instill minority rule. And I don't, I'm not sure how you fix that one. It just seems like everything hinges on the filibuster. Maybe there are some more tactics we can use before it gets to that point because it's a big deal, but it seems like the filibuster is the center of attention and the thing that could, even if temporary, solve our problems. Well, this is why, and and this is, I'm not trying to be like intensely hasty, but this is, I think where my, like you guys know my kind of, my political philosophy, especially from like the beginning of the show is like, if I think that we can actually like meet the problem with a solution with bipartisan support, then like I am all for that, but not like, again, not at the expense of not actually fixing the problem. And my issue with this is that if it's not the filibuster and it's the Republican party, as Caleb just was point was point, or as you pointed out and Caleb was reiterating, where does that leave the issues? Right. Like, do we not think that there's a voter suppression issue in this country? Do we not think that there needs to be corrective action? Do we not think that like does, does polling not show us time and time again that we continue to not have Republican support on on legislation that has overwhelming bipartisan support by Americans? Like, at what point is it just to continue to maintain a minority rule in this country? We already have the 50 senators uh, and Democratic senators representing like 40 million plus more people than the 50 Republican senators. Like we already have a broken institution and system that is not representative of everyone. And I I know like you would say like passing the for the, like suspending the filibuster for the For the People Act because I am under some assumption that all these people are going to like more likely vote for the Democrats. No, that I think, I think that that, like, do I hope that? Yes. Does polling support that? Yes. But the issue is, I just want everyone to have the opportunity to vote so that our Senate is reflective of the democracy that we live in, so that our, our U.S. House of Representatives is reflective of the democracy that we live in. I'm actually looking to like push forward a more pure sense of democracy in which the filibuster is an obstacle for. Well, I mean, yes. Um, but I do think something that you miss out in that conversation, too, is the House is screwed because of um, gerrymandering, which if we follow the mansion um, amendment, won't be solved here. So the House still gets stuck in in this sense of does the party really, uh, does any party necessarily get there? But I, I do want to lean into that. Um, but mansion's a bad take though, only and, and from a fair place. Yes. Like he, like he represents the reddest state in the country. Right like, next legit- to Idaho. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like like he, it's not like it's crazy that he's taking these actions. I disagree with them, but like, absolutely, I would be I crazy to not 
understand the political nature of his decisions. Absolutely. But like, so I like don't want to like, use that as an example because he's a Democratic mm-hmm. like senator who's representing a deeply Republican state. But mm-hmm. I, I think you lean exactly into to what I'm saying here, right? Is um, the issue is not the, the I, I'll say this again, the issue is not the filibuster. It, it, it is a remedy, sure. The issue is our democracy hasn't represented its its people in a generation. We have grown in such a way that I think is fair to say the founders didn't anticipate. They they didn't think that we would still be operating from a document created in the 1700s. Granted, they also didn't think that black people were ever going to be able to vote. That's a whole nother story. What I think is important. Their definition of all was different than the definition of all we understand. Very. What I think is important to what you, what you mentioned about Joe Manchin specifically is his amendments to the for the people act were not outrageous. I don't agree with them. I, I was very proud to be able to vote for an independent commission to do district redistricting in Michigan, but it comes from a place of recognizing that, the the people that are being represented have a certain vision, at least to what these career politicians believe, that need to be followed. And that that leans into and, and is part of the reason why I can agree with Kirsten Cinema because the issue is we don't have options. We don't have a system that allows for the libertarian to really vote. They have to vote for the Republican and they end up voting for the more radical Republican because they are saying even less government than your moderate would. You don't have a place for the Bernie Sanders. Probably going to get some shit for that later. Um, You don't have a place for the Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party because he will even tell you that he is a socialist at the end of the day. He isn't independent when he runs. He caucuses with the Democrats and has moved to being a Democrat because he views that America can't break out of its two-party system. If we really want to have a remedy to the situation that we are seeing, it is not the filibuster. The filibuster is not going to give us this great sense of American policy. What will give us that sense is our Whig parties, our bull moose parties, are, are all the history that we have of the years where we had more than just one, where, yes, again, like I mentioned in a former episode, civics might have taught us that it was chaotic, but it really wasn't. And the people were able to actually vote on a policy understanding and an understanding of what the core principle of that party was versus what we're seeing now of you're either a Democrat or a Republican, but you're never a moderate. No, I, I mean, I... I was actually going to say, I now remember, I was going to say that we kind of found ourselves in the same spot in this conversation that we did before, which is, okay, what's our solution? Okay, break up the two-party system. Like, that was the only solution we provided last time we got super deep into this. But it's it still seems like such an insurmountable thing. I, I think I just challenged that it doesn't have to be. I Maybe not, but I think the, I think the issue is that the stuff that we're dealing with today that the filibuster could at least temporarily seem to fix are happening now in the building of a new American system isn't something that's going to that's gonna be successful tomorrow if you start today. It's going to take a lot of days. And by days, I mean years. This is my point, though. It's not a... And uh, 
before I, I become more preachy than I probably already have been on this part. <laughs> it's not a building of a new American system. We've operated in this way. We've had multiple, multiple eras where political parties broke up, but because we have allowed for, I'll use this word because maybe it'll connect to some of our, our conservative listeners if we have any, um, because we've allowed for this indoctrination that the two-party system is the way that American politics can only work. And we have this idea that you caucus with a party is where I think the issue lies. I don't think it's a radical idea for a party to break up. I don't think it's a radical idea for a new party to just form. But we have to stop pretending like the Green Party, the Libertarians, uh, I can't name another one off the top of my head right now because those are the two major secondary parties. We have to stop using them as a butt of jokes and start allowing them to really have an investment in the in the power and in in, in the process. And my fear, similar to cinemas, is yes, the filibuster will allow for a lot of policies that I think are really good to fix democracy to happen right now. But that is not to say that we won't see another Trump wave. That is not to say that we won't see a a further crippling of democracy. And we don't have the Supreme Court that we can lean on in hopes that, oh, maybe they will overrule or change something. Because we've already seen voting is not something that they believe they have the power to control. That is purely on the legislature. Those those are my arguments and my understanding of why we've ended up where we have with cinema. I really mostly agree with you. I just don't think it's that simple to allow. It's it's not as simple as changing voters' minds about um, having multiple parties. I just think it'll take a long time to... Maybe saying uh, American system earlier was dramatic, but I just think it would take a lot of time, effort, money, and years to... <laughs> get America to vote for multiple parties. Look at well, and the eras in which that we, well, yeah, but in the eras in which we've had, that we've had any semblance of a, of a, of a stronger third party. We're not in an era where people of color had the right to vote and I'm not the right to vote, right to vote that there's factors here that like that push back against that. Not that I like, I'm saying that's going to be the case. I'm saying race is a large part of all the issues we face. Yes. Systemically. Absolutely. Completely agree. Yes. Race plays an astronomical part in the story of America and how we ended up where we did today. One thing that I do challenge there, however, is if a party were to start today that ran on passing the For the People's Act, that ran on more equitable practices and and just a, a revisioning of how America currently functions. Is it improper to say that you might see the Democratic Party lose in states they haven't lost in years to get a person or a peoples who will actually fight for and do those things? And then on the complete opposite, if you get a... a the lieutenant governor of Idaho standing up and saying that critical race is the terrorism of America and all of these jazzes. Is it so wild to imagine like, yes, race plays a part in this, but if you have more options, does that not allow for 
people like you and I, Torrance, to not just vote for our lives to depend on it because there is one party that will make our lives worse, but to really vote on a policy perspective that actually says, you know what? I do like this party. I do agree with their liberalism and where they want to go, but this specific party understands where I am in this day and age, and that is the representation I deserve on Capitol Hill. That is the party I deserve to see on Capitol Hill. Trill, are you saying that we are dangerously likely to start a new party? That's like the third time you've said it in this. I'm down anytime I can build the infrastructure <laughs> if needed. But I, I, I really genuinely feel that is the only way to fix where we are in present day. The pressure that we're feeling as millennials, the pressure that we're feeling as millennial minoritized people, the pressure that we're feeling as members of the Alphabet Mafia, LGBTQ, shout out to Pride Month, it cannot be resolved by the filibuster. It, it And I shared this in that episode too. There is a, G, uh, there is a deep, genuine fear that a party can come in and undo so many things that took decades for people to fight for without the filibuster in the place to just have some semblance of, at least I have that hope. There is no way for a political party to stop the creation of and the separation of and the building of another political party that will continue to do the work and do the fight, especially with the filibuster existing for that exact party to stand up and say, you don't have the votes. We do not allow this. It's it's those type of things that I think are important to this argument, and I get the need for immediate change, but I don't think it'll fix the problems that we're seeing. In global news, per the AP, Ethiopia declares immediate unilateral ceasefire in Tarje. Um, the Ethiopian government has declared an immediate ceasefire after months of deadly conflict in the Tar- Targary region. Um, citing conversations and talks with the um, people of that region, recognizing that there is importance and a necessity to calming the war and decreasing destabilization in the region. Most notably, um, we have seen that the prime minister has really stepped forward to promote a um, a centerpiece for reform in the region that would allow for the people to um, partake in and be a part of dialogues. More internationally, um, also per the AP, the UN Human Rights Chief has finally completed their report following the murder of George Floyd and have really honed in on and recognized that reparations are needed for people who face racism. In a rather shocking report, the UN High Commissioner, Michelle Batchelet, um, for the human rights of the organization, highlighted in over 60 countries a widespread impact of racism and the importance that those countries step forward in really, truly highlighting and supporting in reparations to prop up the peoples of that country and also own the fact that countries were built on the back of racism. That's a big fucking deal. Yeah. 
Will the U.S. listen? Probably not. Um, <laughs> lastly, international the International Court for um, Latin America sided with um, a human rights group in Honduras as they found the government was responsible for a 2009 killing of a transgender one woman. This has broad implications for the region, um, one of which is the most horrendous and most dangerous for members of the LGBTQIA plus community and um, is being looked at from an international perspective as one of the most significant decisions in modern history as it relates to trans- transgendered individuals and their protections under the law. And we're back on today's episode, uh, ready to have a culture conversation, something we haven't done in a while. Um, we're going to do it a little differently today, trying something new. We're going to kind of do a roundtable discussion on some political converse, uh, topics, some culture topics, um, some music, film topics, um, just have an open conversation about some things that have been going on uh, in the world and in pop culture lately. Uh, I know that we just kind of got off of a, a political conversation, but this one's kind of like by the top of my mind. I don't know if you guys, um, I don't know if you guys saw the story out of out of Politico uh, that was titled "You Don't Have to Die on Your Seat: Democrats mm-hmm. Stress Over Aging Members." Um, and I don't want to like talk too much specifically about like the actual story, just so more so like the topic of um, aging members in Congress, how it's disproportionate, it's hugely disproportionately uh, representative of the aging population and not of the millennial population, who's the largest population um, in our country. And I think that this is a huge issue. Um, one, because like, I don't want to step into ageism, right? By like saying that there's a certain point that you need to leave the job, but also like in, in defense of kind of the position that I'm taking like I said in previous conversations, our government should be representative of the people. And mm-hmm. right now we have we have had a in a continuously aging population making decisions for us that we know now to have been not great decisions for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, look no further than climate change um, uh, that we discussed in the in the opening of this episode. Um, and not and, and but in addition to that, like uh, age aside, we've got a lot of really talented young lawmakers in states across the country and cities across the country who just are sitting on the bench, you know, waiting for the opportunity to run against, to, to run for the party that they represent uh, without stepping on quote unquote, the toes of the, you know, aging leaders of our party. I mean, obviously I think of Diane Feinstein, she's 88 years old. She, you know, signals that she's going to run for another term. But one of the things yeah. that the, yeah, you know, one of the things they talk they talk about is you know Rep- Representative um, Alcee Hastings, who was eighty four years old and battling pancreatic cancer, um, and was nearing his third decade in Congress when he ran for his seat again last November and then, and then d- died. died this April, leaving his seat vacant in Florida, in Florida. where there's a Republican governor DeSantis who said he will wait Hold nine months, the long longest possible time for the special election, and it will. So it's not going to be uh, have a special election until next until this coming January. So at what point is this like selfishness, right? Like, I'm sorry, like it's not ages when you're saying three decades is, is enough time. (laughs) Like three decades is more than enough time and it has nothing to, like you could be, have started when you were 25. I still would think three decades was too long to be representing Mm -hmm. the same district. And like I've said before, not running for the Senate, not running for governorship, not 
doing something different. Yeah. What kind of problem do you guys think this poses for our representation in Congress? And what kind of issue do you think that it poses just kind of in general for a, a democracy? It's interesting that you bring this topic up, Torrance, because um, I was talking with my dad once and my my dad read this article. This is, I don't know, this is several months ago, if not a couple of years ago, about what we're seeing today and all the divisiveness and the different power influxes of both the parties and just like the craziness of our time is, I mean, besides things that we can't really control that much like COVID-19 and the pandemic and whatnot, but politically we're in an age of generational change Mm -hmm. and it happens about every 80 years. If you think about it, 80 years ago, we were kind of around world war two, 80 years before that it was the civil war. 80 years before that, well, that was around the time when we started to become a country. I genuinely believe that we will get the voices that represent us into Congress, but it's not a change that happens overnight. It's very slow. Mm-hmm. And people of the last generation, it's natural for them to want to hold on to power. So I think that we'll get there, but. <laughs> It's just, it's frustrating right now that we're not as represented as we should be. Um, But I do, I do think that it has begun to change, even though it's very slow. And I think it will continue to take a while, but it'll happen. And then in however many years from now, it'll probably be the same story again. That's just kind of, that's just kind of the history of this country too, in a way. So I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that? Is that... I think there's a really interesting, um, I also read this article, Torrance, and um, it got me me thinking, one, why we allowed ageism to become a thing. I'm going to be completely transparent. I I get very frustrated with it. I, I think there's an importance to owning your bias, right? But there is a a difference between saying that uh, I've had this conversation with my parents where you've reached an age where your job has also grown beyond you. And that's not a bad thing. The country should support you in that and give you an opportunity to exit the workforce appropriately because we have adapted and things have changed and there are generations and people. The fact that we've allowed this idea that ageism and bias should give reason to individuals holding on to their job forever is beyond me. But what was interesting is in this country, you are not eligible for your social security, i.e. apply for retirement until you reach the age of 68. The average lifespan for an individual in America is between 72 to 78 years. If that, if you, you operate off of that, I understand it to some sense of why you hold on to a position for so long. You have a social security system that's constantly under attack and saying that it won't, it might not exist by X generation. You have employment that has changing benefits. Once you retire, that might not support you. You have no sense of real support after you leave the workforce. However, retirement for 10 years? What does that even look like? What is that supposed to mean? Why Why would I 
in my 60s decide to retire and leave this position when my life expectancy is only until 77. At that point, I really, I I can understand someone's mindset of, I'm going to keep working. I'm just, if it means I get money and it means I take care of my family and it means I'm going to do all of these things, I'm just going to keep doing it because I can. And I, this is probably interesting for listeners too, because normally I'm the conservative voice to try to give us some tensions here. But um, I think this is a demonstration of how our system fails. How are you supposed to leave the workforce if they're only going to give you enough support for 10-ish years at best? And then if you outlive that, you become this burden to the system and you're concerned that your Medicare or Medicaid is going to be cut because people are feeling that you are stressing the system. This this is a bigger problem. Um, obviously not when we're talking about the sin and the legislator because they're taken care of for life regardless. But specifically to that ageism piece, I get very frustrated with, again, us focusing on the wrong pieces or the wrong points. Well, I, yeah, I don't just like, obviously I yeah. think that that's all true, right? Like, cause it's like, all, like outside of just social security, even to like the, the larger economic problem in America, right? Like the inability to accrue, accrue enough wealth to live a decent standard of living in your retirement and not, n- not necessarily be living solely off of social security, right? Like there's a confluence of factors that, that make that an issue. And I was kind of like talking about it more right in, in isolation to our representation and democracy, mm-hmm. because like, I, I just like was looked it up for sake of conversation that like, you know, Diane Feinstein's 88 has been in, has been representing California for a couple de- decades. She'll the be average 92 age, if she wins the, the average election. age of Cal- of Californians are 36 and a half years old. Like at what point, I guess it's like, at what point is it really just about power, which is, se- which is selfishness, mm-hmm. is selfishness. And that's what it has to be called, right? Like not age. It's like when, when you put the agenda you say you believe in at risk because you have your own selfish desire for power to stay in power, when you don't find financially need it, when you have several vacation homes, like I'm sure Diane Feinstein has, right, to go and retire to with plenty of pension, like what are you doing, right? Like you are just withholding representation and power from a younger generation who has to find the solutions and draft the solutions to the problems of our day. And I just find that to be like, again, very selfish and antithetical to the policy agenda that they say that they support. And that's that's frustrating to me because at what point is, you know, inefficiency not enough for you Absolutely. to make the decision? Yeah. And- I mean, I've obviously been the one on the pod to say it's time for some revolutions. And I I think specific to that, it's time for um, a change in how we view our parties. Like name recognition cannot continue to be the thing that gets you elected. And uh, I'm really intrigued to see based on how the House shakes up. Does Nancy Pelosi continue to keep her speakership? Because I think that that to me is a signal of where the Democratic Party specifically is. Um, I mean, Mitch McConnell, too, of we all thought he was going to croak, but not even a couple months ago. Eh, I don't feel bad for saying that about him. I don't like him. Um, He did look unwell. I wasn't trying to be. We weren't being, I think, like assholes. He did look unwell. Unwell is an understatement. 
That was the kind way to put it. Yes, that was a very nice way to put it. I'll stick with croak. <laughs> he looked like he was going to croak, um, which fits because he's a frog. Um, <laughs> but I thought he was a turtle. Eh, frog turtle. Yeah, whatever. He's whatever serpent is bothering me in this moment. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, but if we continue to see parties feel that the value is more name recognition and not on policy. I, I think this comes very well into the filibuster argument too. There needs to be some option or some view in the democracy that there can be a change or shift from that. Um, and not a view that you just have to vote for Mitch McConnell. Cause you know, he's going to be the Republican that does what you need. And I think that that goes back to like, remember my American dream piece, right? Like, the reason that that character was running was like, what is this imaginary line? What is this wait your turn? You know, mm-hmm. what is this respect your elders thing? Like no one's ever pointed you to a line. No one's ever given you the opportunity. They just tell you to wait, wait, wait without, without that tune ever changing. Mm-hmm. So the remedy to this is like a lot of things. I think if we like draw the through line, political courage yeah, to have political courage to, to primary people, to, you know, run independent to do to do things outside of the norm of the system with gall and ambition and and see if you can be the change. I agree. Yeah. Just saying, don't primary Nancy Pelosi though. I do kind of like her, but yeah. I do <laughs> like Nan. She's an effect, effective leader. Nan. I, I was gonna jump over to a culture topic, but it kind of streams into this, like one of the issues of our po- of our politics. And I wanted to know like what is your guys' kind of take? Because if I think about it too long, it's a bit it's a bit bleak, but it's also like a very true issue we're facing, which is misinformation and disinformation. Um, and an increasingly like, yes, a generation that is increasingly more educated, but a like society that is increasingly more uh, susceptible and exposed to mass disinformation campaigns on social media, online, that really are having a very tough like a a really rough impact on our democracy i mean we can't have we're not even having fact-based debates on policy and issues we're getting these red herrings what what kind of effect is that going to have right long term on our democracy and our ability to organize and get things done bring back the newspaper how you didn't like local news who said i was talking about local news here like new york times wall street journal no that specifically yeah like, I also love local news, so I don't agree with that. Yeah, I was like, I <laughs> local news is just a bunch of what ambulance chasers that provide no substantive information for any populace. I they think are, it's a very broad. Story. They are. A I, I think direct, it is a really broad statement, and I think it's coming from someone who hasn't been every, back in a smaller regional town in a while. Because like that's they are how we get correlation to every problem we have. Bring back who your seed. Bring back your CBS, bring back your your ABCs that gave you, here's what's happening in the country. Here's what's happening globally that might impact you. And maybe one or two things of like, oh, just so you're aware, these streets are shut down. But when you have a local news structure that only wants to tell you about every other shooting, even though it has no relevance, the person's already been caught it is it literally has no impact on the broad swat other than to fear monger and concern i don't understand what the argument is that local news is doing us any good or to bring up stories that they just think are relevant cuz they're bored 
it's not that I don't think that there is a bunch of irrelevant stuff in local news because like there certainly is. But I also think that like, even if it's just what I'd probably say it is probably only 35 to 40% of the stuff that I like see on local news is helpful and pertinent to, you know, the community, but like learning about, you know, school board votes and town halls that are occurring for your local school board, for your local city no, hall, for, for, that. For, for things that are being passed. You, and, and I'm living in this, in this location right now. That is something that like, if we didn't have our local news, that people would not know those things were going on if they weren't tuned into like the specific school, like had kids, right? But like, you don't have to have kids to care about what's going on in your school board or what's going on in your city hall. Like, I, I understand Let what you're clarify. saying. Like, I hear a lot of murders, a lot of crime that like, don't, like, it just is really negative, right? And, and Sinclair is, you know, a yes, broadcasting a group that is hugely, yeah, yeah, is very bad. But I think that you undervalue what people can get from their local news. Let me clarify too. When I say you don't need local news for that, I mean, what you just shared is very important, right? It is a segment that can happen. How think back to a sports game that you've watched recently. Think back to like, think back to like the NBA finals into let's go 2020. How do you remember how they'll sometimes cut and do like a quick, here's the weather. Here's this. No, that's, that's what, actually I'm, what I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah, I watched okay. CBS this morning and that's exactly what it is. We have two 20-minute segments on the two-hour show exactly. of CBS in the local where you get your weather, you get your, you know, these that's important stuff, and, you know. That's yeah, important. Those Monday segments stuff. where it's just like that, great. You don't need the action news at seven from seven to eight. Right, that right. Tell, yeah. That is what I'm speaking about where I say okay. local news is ineffective because it doesn't at least not to the acute nature that it is i think especially in the midwest where like we would be fine with chicago news like like, right like with segments about our local area but like largely getting chicago news because traffic wise the tri like a lot of a lot of what we deal with is the tri-state area i mean i i get the regional news in south bend where where notre dame is but most of that we could go without but we could do better without it is this, is this argument applied to, are you just talking about simply broadcast media or are we also talking about local news in terms of print media, like newspapers and whatnot? No, just broadcast. No, I think newspaper is important. Oh, okay. Yeah, newspaper, yeah. 100% important. Well, how much different is it besides being print? Oh, quite different. I think that like our, news our newspapers, reporting. very community-based, very, what bus- what like what's going on with the businesses? What's going on with like the different charities what's the human interest story right yeah. whereas like when i turn on our local news at five like i'm getting a okay there was a, a specific a specific perspective I- of 40 that's well, not good a to real know space closed. right and a typically <laughs> conservative perspective on national news which is like yeah. you know is really can be really frustrating because i'm like it's you have one job just to be unbiased and to present what's happening. I just wanted to, I just wanted to know if there was a difference or not in terms of how we viewed this. I I mostly agree. I feel as though um, there's some in Boise, I find that there's some good reporting done on the newspaper level. Um, Yes. (laughs) I don't don't watch broadcast, so I couldn't tell you. Like I know almost never watch broadcast media. I also local news, but I, I think important too, is I'm, I'm speaking to like the Walter Cronkites, right? Like that is what I'm I'm speaking to. I understand why we ended up where we did. We are in an information age. There is so much happening. But I do think there should be a standard bearer for when it comes to news reporting, 
and this is how we end up in the misinformation, right? Of, and yes, I'm biased because I'm speaking to my Detroit and Grand Rapids times, but you get a news story about a shooting that was two people who got into an altercation, got into a fight, someone shot them, cops came, but the story happened and it's done. There's no information that needs to be gathered. There's no real need for right. the community, no community to show safety up. safety interest. Exactly. Right. It's just a right. story. And uh, to this, this point of misinformation, that's why you see people start going to your Facebook and your Twitters and all of these places because they're able to put up the same story that you're going to see at seven o'clock, but they're trying to gather information quickly. And we've lost that ability to connect and understand your Walter Cronkite, your, I call back to CBS, your CBS and ABCs of here are stories that actually impact the community. And here are things that we actually need from you. Now we're in a space where you go to Facebook and that's where they're talking about the some child just got hit by a car and they're trying to figure out and give you the license plate and all these pieces. And next thing you know, you see Facebook and Twitter as that type of news media. So when you see the random meme that says Joe Biden was a part of the Epstein murder, it's easier for you to fall into that wormhole. And especially when you already are a part of an echo chamber or families from smaller communities, it's easier for you to be like, well, I'm already here because I was trying to help find this missing girl. And now I'm in this space. We need to get back to a place where media actually did its role and didn't just try to tell us stuff because they think it makes them relevant. And and to that, like just to the, the more like larger social or societal issue with this is what we talk about often, which is like, you know, our, our civics classes have failed us. Yeah. The general knowledge, right? Like having media literacy, knowing to go fact check, knowing how to corroborate pieces of information with other pieces of information, right? Mm-hmm. Like people think that you get a, you get fed something that you have no ability to like screen. How, how true is this? What What is, what is the source being cited? Who is that source? And what is like, what are their credentials? Like, right, like people just think, oh, well, I, I'm just being fed bullshit and I should eat it. Yep. Like, you know, and then complain about being fed bullshit. And it's like, well, you don't actually have to eat the bullshit. You exactly. could, you could actually parse it out and get the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so to transition a little bit to culture and in honor, of course, uh, of pride month, this is our last episode in June. Um, I wanted to play a little rapid fire game of pride trivia boys. I feel like I'm immune because I'm a part of the community. So this is all you gave up. <laughs> oh, shit. All right. So it's, first question. I was about to make a great joke and you ruined it. Oh, no. I was going to be let's like, test. it's very homophobic for you to put me on the spot, Torrance, because it's Pride Month. Excuse me. Let's test the straight guy. Woo. This is this is really putting this is really putting uh, your allyship to, to the test. <laughs> we will remove your target shirt if you fail. <laughs> Okay. I actually don't have one of those. Some of these are easier, some of them are harder, but okay. I do believe in you. Okay. Uh-oh. Question number one. What U.S. presidents have publicly acknowledged Pride Month? I can give you one hint. No, no. Well, my immediate impression of this question is Biden and maybe Obama. But I'm not 100% sure. You've been asked this question before. I have? Yep. 
Uh oh. <laughs> are you ready for the? So you got you got two. You said There's Biden more. and Obama, <sighs> and President Bill Clinton in the nineties. Oh, okay. Stated that June was Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Okay, so, well, don't judge me too hard for this one. Okay? No, no. We had. No, 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 this is not. Did we're not we judging do this? Did we do this on the pod, or was it just a random thing? We had it must question. have been just YouTube. We've never talked about this before. Oh, I don't remember because I are or maybe it was a maybe it was just a trivia night. It was a trivia night because I was like, I think it was George Bush, not Clinton. I was like, it's and, definitely not Trump. But I was like, well, yeah. I didn't realize Clinton did. That seems really far back. Yeah. Anyways, what's the next one? Let's get it. Next question. What is the name of the event that sparked the modern LGBTQ movement? And as a bonus, more specifically, what is the exact date that that event took place? Well, it's the Stonewall riots. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to tell you the exact date, although it you was in the, the 50s. Month. You could probably guess the month. Well, June, right? But in the 50, it was in the 50s, wasn't it? Uh, no. The Stonewall riot took place over Tuesday, two days starting on June 28th, this day in history in 1969. Ah, uh, okay. June 28th and June 29th. Wow, I really... For I the I came up with these questions without having to, like, you know, have the answers right here because I do know my trivia. <laughs> I'm a learned gay boy, okay? For the, <laughs> for the, for the viewers out there, I am uh, not great at trivia, so apologies. Next question. <laughs> Sorry, I've been, biting my, I've been biting my tongue really well. Like, are you a learning gay boy because we should all get of together white and culture? do a trivia night sometime? That'd be fun. Because uh, of no. white gay culture, they like put you on the spot. Because I feel like no, because I wanted to be an informed young man. Fair. Damn. Is that what white gay culture uh, is all about? Yeah, it's all. Yeah, 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 that's it. Really knowing your history and how it's you not, got your rights. It's not yep, so much knowing really... your history. It's more so like there's always a like, oh, are you really like? Do you fit? Anyway, continue. So Bill Clinton recognized gay and lesbian okay, right. only 20 quote, years gay and basically after the the riots which okay that's interesting i probably would mm-hmm. not have this just goes to show you i still would not have guessed clinton anyways go honestly on. i didn't either you're okay <laughs> a follow-up question to the the previous so it's kind of all contextual in what new york neighborhood is stonewall in located it's very well it's called the stonewall riots because of the uh bar yeah the stonewall right. inn or the mm-hmm. inn, but no, it's the bar. You're right. No, it's is called it the Stonewall Inn, but it yeah. is a bar. It is a bar. Yeah, oh, okay. it's is a it bar called the inn? Stonewall Inn. Sure. Oh, shut up! It's a bar <laughs> called the Stonewall Inn. <laughs> I can't stand you. <laughs> you can guess where this is. I promise you. I don't know. I There's only like three boroughs, and I. Oh, are we talking? Are we going boroughs or neighborhoods? I'm sorry. Are we doing yeah, boroughs or neighborhoods? They're the same thing. Is it? I mean, technically, if by New York standards. By New York standards, they're the same thing. So that tells you it's not like I Albany. Or I remember anything. I remember reading it, but I... The answer is Greenwich Village. Oh, I would not have gotten that. Well, then you made me think about oh, boroughs. I thought you would just do the borough. Like Manhattan cause... or Queens or something. I don't know. No, Stonewall is specifically in Greenwich Village. Yes. Like that's oh, Greenwich. Okay. Uh-huh. I just yeah, thought you okay. would do the borough and make his life a little bit easier. Sorry. Wow. I was, I was being nice. Sorry. And I... then to loop it back to politics for your final question. Oh. Who was the first openly gay man elected to public office in the United States? I fear that I am meeting the expectations of the average white straight male. Really? You don't know this one? 
I feel like that, I, that that was judgment. I'm not even gonna lie. That was, <laughs> absolutely no. Feel free to judge uh, me. I just he was he was also assassinated, and it was in San Francisco. He was a oh God, city supervisor. There's in a movie San about him with his name. You probably drink this every day. Harvey <laughs> Milk, played by Sean Penn. Yeah, I wasn't going to get in, that in one. In the yeah. biopic. Was he elected? Yes. I, <laughs> yes. I don't know why I didn't think he was elected. I thought he just yeah. ran. No, no, no. He was a city supervisor when he was... when he. That's was right. He was a city supervisor. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I learned something today. <laughs> that <laughs> really... Like, well, you know... <laughs> Thank you for for joining us in our, in our first uh, LGBTQ Pride quiz. That went uh, stellar. I mean, yeah. I when you said elected, I I'm really, proud of you, Caleb. I oof, really didn't oof. think. I don't feel for you for the bonus because I mean, I do feel for you for the bonus. Sorry, because I really didn't think he was elected to office. I forgot that he was a city uh, manager. So in my mind, I was like, he was running when he got assassinated. He wasn't technically elected yet. Twas elected. In what year? Uh, Ooh, trivia back at you. It's okay. I don't know. He was assassinated <laughs> after Robert, right? So 1972? Uh, 71? Somewhere in that range? Or did he, yeah, I'm pretty sure he got assassinated after MLK. And... Uh, Harvey Milk was assassinated in 78. Ah, it was too early. Okay. I knew it was after Kennedy and both Kennedys and MLK. So that's why I thought it was earlier mm-hmm. 70s. Shall we move on over to tangents? Sure. Right after this break, stay tuned for some tangents. We'll be right back. To continue with our honoring of Pride Month, um, we're going to be a little different this tangent. And I really just want to thank Torrance for this question and start with him of what does pride mean to you? Thank you, Terrell. Um, it's, I, I have like uh, two kind of answers, but I, I want to choose one. More in, So when I think about like my experience being a, a gay male, one of the things I think constantly is hard about this experience uh, among a lot of things but like this one specifically is how because of the heteronormative society that we live in um there's a lot of stuff that you feel like you get robbed of a lot of experiences in middle school and high school you know going to 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 a dance with a boy going to prom or to your formal with a boy um having a a a boyfriend having a high school sweetheart um there's so much stuff that you feel like you mourn for so long after that feels like you'll never like, like there's, there were points in my life where it just didn't feel like I was ever going to feel complete because I wasn't ever going to get those things that it felt so standard for other people. And so such a privilege and, and, and norm for other people. Um, and so for me, pride is about living the, it gets better and, and pushing back on my own insecurities and my own internalized homophobia and and you know the pushing back on the anxiety i get when wa- when walking down the street holding my boyfriend's hand because i'm afraid you know of what could happen because like what if some you know 10 year old boy who's just feeling starting to feel confused right starting to understand there's something maybe different about him maybe he sees how normal that could be right how 
he doesn't have to miss out on the things that I missed out on, that uh, he could have courage and feel safe and, and to not feel like these are abnormal feelings that he's experiencing. So like what pride means to me is like living in your true skin um, mm-hmm. and understanding that like we owe what we have now to the people before us, um, the strong trans women of color who have led our movement from the start um, and that we we bear a responsibility, whether we uh, like that or not, or understand that or not all the time, that we bear a responsibility to the younger generation um, that's coming after us to continue um, gay and queer liberation uh, and to just continue to fight for equality. Caleb, take us on a tangent. A pride tangent? Yeah. <laughs> Does that mean it's going to be colorful? I mean, that could be taken a lot of ways from a rhetorical sense. I appreciated that comment that I just made. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing visual, though, because this is a podcast. (laughs) What does pride mean to me? I don't have any personal experiences that 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 necessarily feed into what I think pride is. But to me, pride is really about being able to be who you are, especially in the society we live in and continuing to fight for that full equality um, that all humans deserve. Um, You know, I've had, like, I know a lot of people who are within this group and hearing all the experiences that I've heard from them. And I've never, you know, growing up, I've never really thought twice about it. I've never kind of what you said, Torrance, about heteronormative society. Obviously, I didn't realize that some things in our society um, don't apply to everyone Hmm. when I was growing up, but it was also just never something that I thought was a big deal. You know, you love who you love and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And so I just think that pride, pride is about being who you are and it's about people that are straight and like me, like I'm a white straight male, accepting that and coming to an understanding that our society and some of the actions that we take or some of the traditions that we have um, should include everybody in that. And that's kind of what pride means to me. What about you, Terrell? Take us on a tangent. A pride tangent. (laughs) I... I think I lean into Pride Month the same way I do Black History Month. Um, Even though we might not know it, Pride history is ingrained in how this country has worked. They are former senators. There are um, great American heroes, as some might call them, in the athletic field that hid their identity for generations because they didn't feel accepted. And um, I guess for me, it's important that there's an opportunity and there's a space to express yourself, to be open, uh, echoing what you mentioned, Torrance, of feeling comfortable in your skin when you're walking around, whether you actually are comfortable is another story, but having a space where you can reflect and and recognize that you're seen is huge. Um, But for us as a country specifically, owning that it wasn't legal to get married 
in our generation. It people still struggle to understand what it means to be gender fluid, to be transgendered, to be non-binary. And I think, Caleb, you worded it best of this is a space and an opportunity where everyone can grow and learn and, and find acceptance, but it, it has to be more than just a mom. I like that. Well, that's our show. <laughs> I'm Torrance. I'm Caleb. And I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week. Thank you.